Welcome to No Small Talk, the arts and entertainment podcast for the Arkansas Times. I'm Stephanie Smittle, and I'm here with Omaya Jones. Hey, today we'll start with some arts and entertainment news. We'll talk. We'll also talk with Nate Powell, the North Little Rock native who won the National Book Award for his work as a comic book artist in the Mars Trilogy. But first, a few things we think you should know about. We think you should know that on Max Recordings, uh, Magic Crop Dusters has a new EP. Speaking of the 90s and early aughts era of Little Rock, so uh, David Jukes recorded an album of material in the mid-2000s in the Denton, Texas studio owned by Matt Pence called Centromatic. And Jeff Matika plays bass on and uh, Bert played drums on those songs. Joe Cripps helped fund and distribute the record. And when Joe passed away, the album was no longer available. So, in the intervening year, David rethought the original 10-song album and pared it down to a five-song EP, which, as I understand, is now um, out on Spotify and elsewhere, and it's called Snowfall. You should check it out. Yeah, this information comes from Bert Taggart of Max Recordings. If you haven't checked out uh, all the neat goodies on Max, go and check it out and support your local record label. Pretty sweet. Also, I don't know if we have any parents who listen in. But this did come across my uh, my view, and as a person who um, is an aunt to six nieces and nephews, I think about these things, and I think about how expensive it is for parents mm-hmm. to find stuff for the kids to do during the summer. So you listeners should know that, uh, or maybe you're just cheap and you should just do this anyway. <laughs> and if you don't have kids, uh, Regal Cinemas is doing dollar movies on Tuesday and Wednesday mornings. So if you're free on Tuesday and Wednesday mornings, check it out. It's at uh, Reg movies regmovies.com backslash movies backslash summer dash movie dash express we'll link to that on our blog post but basically the deal is you can go see like iron giant and the lego movie and some kids movies for a dollar um iron giant is great fantastic it's one of the greatest movies of all time i could not agree more <laughs> uh, lego movie is also great not quite as great as iron giant but it's really awesome. yeah. i don't know the lego movie Oh, it's 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 a really it's fun and subversive and in a way that you wouldn't expect. Okay. Um, actually, the guys behind the Lego Movie, I think, uh, is this directing duo named Lord Miller, and I think they were the guys behind Solo, Star Wars story before oh. they got fired because their style is kind of improvisational and, oh. um, yeah, like it's really funny. I think they also did like the Twenty One Jump Street, re- <laughs> like reboot. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, that's quite a repertoire they have. Uh, so check that out. There's also a new trailer out for Antiquities, Graham Gordy and uh-huh. Daniel Campbell's full-length feature film that was adapted from Campbell's uh, short 14-minute film of the same name. And uh, it premiered at a festival in Hollywood called Dances with Films. And the trailer's out. It's fantastic. Check it out. Um, Graham Gordy's in there. Maristine Virgin's in there. I think I caught Jason Willey in there yeah. at some point. Uh, and you know uh it's it's just you can't not see north little rock and galaxy furniture Mm -hmm. in it it's just anybody who's been inside galaxy furniture it's almost if anything hard to separate Mm -hmm. that and sort of suspend your reality so that you can remember it's a movie and not like galaxy furniture Cool. Well, I'm excited to see that. Very cool. We are super excited to have Nate Powell as a guest on our podcast today. Uh, he is best known recently for his work on the March trilogy and has a new uh, graphic novel forthcoming in the next few weeks called Come Again. We'll speak with him right here in the studio on No Small Talk, and we'll be right back.
Welcome back to No Small Talk, the arts and entertainment podcast for the Arkansas Times. I'm Stephanie Smittle. I'm here with Omaya Jones. And also with Nate Powell. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> Welcome. Thanks for coming, Nate Powell. Glad to be here. You bet. We are so thrilled to have you. Of course, the Arkansas Times is, uh, we're big fans of your work, uh, and your early work, shall we say, in Sufi Nun Squad, as well as, well, as, well as the work for which the world knows you now. <laughs> and uh, so thanks for joining us. We're so thrilled to have you. Glad to be here. Uh, I want to ask about March. So the March trilogy that uh, that you uh did these beautiful illustrations for tells the visual part of the story of U.S. Representative uh, and civil rights pioneer um, John Lewis about his upbringing in Alabama, uh, his epiphany that led him to become involved in the struggle, and then also his uh, involvement with SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and that group's uh, nonviolent protest actions uh, that changed the course of history. In some ways, this puts you in a sort of unique position to uh, speak out about the ways in which we are still, as in this week, still struggling to like just do basic stuff, like affirm our fellow humans as fellow human beings. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your time with John Lewis and how that's impacted your voice. Sure. Uh, Over the process of collaborating on March with Congressman Lewis and with Andrew um, beyond the you know the the personal responsibility and honor of telling John Lewis's story of of his life and his involvement in such a, a massive social movement near the center and from such a young age beyond that I feel that importantly as as an Arkansan as a southerner uh, as somebody where like, you know, I've been living, I've been living in Indiana for the last 14 years. And it wasn't until I really settled in Indiana away from the American South that I was able to unpack the remainder of that baggage of like having, you know, moderate liberal white Mississippian parents with a particular way of growing up, learning about their history and the history of the civil rights movement. And, uh, sort of reckoning with that on a personal level, reckoning Mm -hmm. with my own understanding of history and continuity, uh, but also like things that I had taken for granted virtually my entire life in regards to that history and how it affected the spaces around us, um, you know, physically, culturally, historically, uh, but even like on a family level, the ways in which my work on March then kind of went back up the stream and really rocked my parents' worlds so that... Uh, you know, like March Book Two, which uh, deals a lot with the Freedom Rides, uh, the continuing sit-in and stand-in movements, the Birmingham Children's March, the March on Washington. Um, a lot of the content in that book really shook my parents up. Uh, even you know, in their late 60s, put them in a situation where they realized that there was there's always baggage that needs to be unpacked and dealt with. And so it, it served as this impetus for a, a pretty strong reckoning they had with, you know, levels of complicity and participation uh-huh. in in the Jim Crow South, uh, particularly like they were kind of, they were really shocked by the degree to which their experience in a relatively moderate northern Mississippi town uh, 
made them effectively blind to a lot of the injustices and the acts of terrorism that were occurring literally you know, 20 or 30 miles from their houses. Um, and, and, and that's very much parallel to my own experience of my parents telling me history as they learned from their lives and from their parents. Uh, you know, when I was in elementary school, I lived in Montgomery. And so learning about the civil rights movement in the mid 80s as an Alabama kid, uh, it was weird because a lot, as an aside, my parents are cool. I like my parents a lot. <laughs> but we're, we're talking about a long arc of change here. So the way that they would present history, whether it's, you know, historical or anecdotal, um, often, and especially in the 80s, would come with this kind of exception after after the story they'd be like oh but that was a different time this that we're living in is not that these are not the droids you're looking for right and it was weird because like living in montgomery i'd visited a lot of these sites and a lot of the footage i would see and a lot of the stories that i would hear or read about were happening you know they would have happened three miles from my house and yet it seemed to have this kind of sheen of unreality Mm -hmm. around it and it took a long time to fully unpack how much effort has to go into maintaining that level of unreality and what purpose it serves. Um, and so when it came time to draw a march and reckon with that on the page, uh, you know, there, there were moments, uh, you know, there are very intense personal moments and very brutal uh, moments depicted in March regarding the civil rights movement and protests and, and atrocities. But a lot of it had to do with physically re-entering these spaces that I feel like as a kid, I didn't quite have the vocabulary to understand that the pieces of history weren't fitting together in the ways that they were being delivered to me. And so I felt like it was my obligation, you know, for my own kids, for people I don't know, and for me as an adult, to be able to, to fit those pieces together in a more complete uh, and a less convenient way. So how do you get there? Because some of those scenes are like what you're describing and what, what you've recreated. You're in, in the tussle. There's muscle. There's blood. There, um, You are able to get at the very visceral heart of what people were doing by putting their physical bodies on the front line of protest. And as you kind of, I think we're maybe alluding to, we... I know I, I grew up in the 80s and I didn't get that part from history books. I didn't get the humanity part and the sure. muscle and the, the sweat that went into it and the danger and the risk and the immediacy. And your your drawings are it about that, if, if <laughs> you know, if, if nothing else. And, and you're so able to make the viewer feel that. And how do you construct it? Are you looking at historical photos or... Verbal accounts, or well, yes, all to all of that. Uh, I think this is getting at the heart of a unique strength of comics. Uh, I think that a reader's capacity to put themselves literally in the shoes of another person. I'm also stealing one of John Lewis's favorite catchphrases. Great, which is you know like if you want to tell me that things haven't changed, that we haven't moved as a society walk you know take a walk in my shoes and tell me we haven't you know and i will show you change but to literally place oneself in one's shoes to to put a reader in a 
on a journey in which they must inhabit the experiences and perspectives of another human being. Um, comics, when done a certain way, uh, when done the way I like to do them, even for my fictional stories uh, for, that, I, that I tell, uh, allows you to place characters and their experiences so close to the reader that you're beyond a place of judgment. Uh, and telling those stories can be so tied to sensory experiences, to what people are seeing, hearing, and touching. Um, that was something I was already interested in before March. And, you know, going into drawing a massive nonfiction tale, I knew that there was like a very fine line that would prevent it from being a dry nonfiction account. And, and the part that would make or break it, I think, was, was embracing and leaning into those sensory experiences. So when I was reading the March script early on, where John Lewis is a six to 16 year old boy, um, these moments, whether it's his relationship with the animals on his farm, his first concepts of reacting to injustice and protesting within the confines of his family, his perception of his first experience with the world outside of the segregated South, all of these things had to do with presenting, presenting sights and sounds that you and I as adults take for granted mm -hmm. and that we've really, that we've allowed ourselves to desensitize ourselves to, uh, all people do it, but you can present them in a way that they truly become fresh and powerful as a person is forced to see them like the character for the first time. And so I think particularly like in the con in the context of even of violence depicted uh, throughout the civil rights struggle in March, I have grown up reading, you know, American superhero comics. And I think we are all very used to a particular visual depiction mm -hmm. of physical violence. And I think even like movies, TV, all of it got its visual vocabulary for violence from American comics in like the forties through the eighties. Mm -hmm. And I knew that, you know, the stakes are different and higher and the responsibility is higher because I'm telling the story of real people and real consequences and the violence is very real. So I kind of had to deprogram everything that I normally do when I'm depicting violence in comics uh, in order to still present it in an unflinching way, but also not fall back on the methods of communicating it, which are sensationalistic and exploitative. That's that, a tall order. Yeah, because that's what makes for fun action comics. And so, yeah, it's like by, by the time I got to the end, you know, got through a few of these scenes that had kind of reprogrammed my way of processing violence in storytelling altogether. Uh, it, it, it continues to be really powerful. It, 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 it's, this sounds almost like a cliche, but it actually resensitized me to seeing mm -hmm. violence in movies and in comics and stuff. Uh, and I, it was one of those things that I just didn't, I didn't get it when people are like, Oh, I, I just don't have a stomach for that in movies. Yeah. And now I'm one of those people. I don't have a stomach for that kind of stuff in movies. And a lot of it was having to draw March book too. Um, and I think that's one of the most powerful things. There are, mo there are a lot of moments in March, which should read as horror. If I did my job correctly, they should be presented and accepted as horror because that is the, the situation in our world on the ground mm -hmm. and to be to find yourself horrified and repulsed by injustice and by 
by power and by oppression uh, is something that everyone has to deal with and people, you know, people do deal with and react with it, you know, on levels and they compartmentalize it on levels. But uh, one of the things I'm most proud of is, is at least subjectively making that raw and new again and actually making power and violence horrifying. So I know like with the first book is mostly based off of John Lewis's accounts of his life and the books two and three, there was more uh, historical research done. And one of the things that I read was that you guys discovered Rosa Parks at a, her appearance at a, at a speech in like 1964. Yeah. Well, when, yeah, in general, there was a, there was a, a working draft of the entire March trilogy as a mm-hmm. single volume uh, that was written in 2009, 2010 between Andrew and Congressman Lewis. We did luck out once we decided to break it up into a trilogy. That first March book is very personal and it's subjective. It's, it, it really is a small world that young John Lewis is inhabiting. And so a lot of it, it did, it did require research and reference, but it required a tenth of the reference mm-hmm. and research that, that even book two required. And a lot of that was because the man himself is right there and he will give you the details of what was happening and there are no there are no photos for some of that and interestingly enough this is like you know there's one photo of his house growing of that farm mm-hmm. and uh, and I had to be like come on you know like Congressman Lewis has this huge archive of stuff and I was like Andrew can you get me a photo of the house and then my my dummy mm-hmm. moment was Andrew being like Nate like he grew up like as a poor black farmer in rural <laughs> Jim Crow Alabama his family did not have a camera, man. Yeah. I'm like, I'm a dummy. I'm going to take this and, and learn and grow. <laughs> uh, but basically, that that was sort of like the impetus for the way I perceived a lot of the information coming in from the other books. Yeah, so like March was also written at a very fortuitous time in which a lot of these first-person documents and accounts were just being digitized for the very first time or they were being made available uh, through you know, like Freedom of Information mm-hmm. Act requests for the first time. Uh, for example, the Martin Luther King and the Montgomery Story comic from 1957. Uh, Congressman Lewis told Andrew about it in the office one day 10 years ago. Andrew went home that night, and it just happened someone had just digitized a copy on the CRM Vets website the year prior mm-hmm. it did not exist on the computer on the computer before then <laughs> yeah. you know, this was a comic that was it was used for training purposes oh, right yes. yeah so yeah and 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 even beyond the american south it was like caesar chavez used it in the uh the farm movement in central california it found its way into central and south central and south america uh and uh someone had, it had been translated into arabic and farsi uh, at the time we were making March Book One, it was being distributed in Egypt leading up to the mm-hmm. Arab Spring. Uh, but at the time, it had sort of fallen into obscurity. Uh, a lot of that because of not catching up with technological changes and archiving changes. And this is the part of this is the part of March that I knew nothing about going into it. So certain accounts required developing a skill set in real time to learn how to even find stuff like that. Uh, and Andrew became exceptionally good at it. And our editor, Lee, like the meticulous detail digger already, really went all the way in the rabbit hole. So the Rosa Parks story is that 
uh, at the end of the Selma to Montgomery March. I think it was March 25th, 1965, on the steps of the Alabama State Capitol. Uh, there, you know, we the script had been written. I had actually drawn all the pages, and you had Andrew Young, you had John Lewis, Dr. King, uh, you had Amelia Boynton speaking. We had all the bases covered. We had all of our photography and like all of our documentation. And I, I finished the pages. We had two days left to send it to the printer. And Lee was doing some fact checking. And at that point, the three of us, Lee, Andrew, and I were working literally around the clock in our different lives. Like one of us was doing something on March and we would like email the other and just keep the ball going. One morning, Lee was like, sound effects for the listeners at home, keyboard keys clacking as, <laughs> as Lee emails us. He's like, guys, what would you say if I told you that Rosa Parks spoke <laughs> at the march and no one has ever documented it? Uh, and I'd be like, well, how is that even possible? And it turns out, thanks to J. Edgar Hoover and his COINTELPRO program in the FBI intended to sabotage and discredit uh, social movements, particularly the civil rights movement, which he had a special disdain for, there were FBI plants and spies all throughout the crowd. But thanks to those COINTELPRO spies, they were taking pictures and they were tr uh, recording audio of the speeches. So the FBI, in like an Indiana Jones vault somewhere, had the audio transcript of Rosa Parks' speech, I'm sure from a magnetic tape recorder, but at that point, uh, like it had recently been digitized by the government as an MP3 file, but no one had ever, no one had then gone and transcribed it into print. So literally no words had ever been typed out from Rosa Parks' speech. Uh, it was just an FBI okay. tape. And so Lee became the first person to actually turn Rosa Parks' audio recording into text. Uh, and there were a couple of moments like that where you actually had to dig into uh, previously untranscribed audio to get the information you needed. Cool. Wow. I, I just had no idea that, <laughs> that these types of hurdles existed, period, or I right. took for granted that surely it's somebody's job to do that for everything, you know? Yeah. I think when you start getting into, like, data management and stuff, you realize that, like, nobody's really doing nobody's anything. Nobody's at the yeah, helm. Yeah. Nobody's yeah. at the wheel. Thanks, J. Edgar, yeah. Yeah. for spying. Yeah, that that <laughs> yeah. was one thing. That's so thanks poetic that. justice. I guess, yeah, it most certainly is. Um, so you spoke about the obligations that you've uh, felt with this being a non-fictional account, and now you have this fictional piece of work sure. out, coming out, Come Again, right? Mm -hmm. and uh, based in Arkansas. So we want oh, to yeah. talk a little bit about this, too. Uh was it nice to let some of that go? <laughs> Just have this free world? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and granted, the whole time I was doing March, I was also writing and penciling and rewriting and repenciling Come Again. So every once in a while, you know, every few months, I would return to it for a week or so and just whittle things and the story would slowly gestate. Um, but once my work on March was finally complete uh, and March you know, March was selling well enough that I had a little bit of this window of, you know, I had the privilege of a window of time in which I didn't have to make money for, yeah. you know, for a, a matter of months. And I realized 
you know, like this was in, in the selfish, creative way, this, this was the payoff. You know, I got to, especially while the world is burning uh, mm-hmm. around us and while I'm trying to equip my kids with the tools they need to be able to stand up and speak out as, as like little tiny people, uh, there's not a lot of space left. So it, it was really nice that for basically the whole rest of 2017, uh, outside of my dad duties and my joining the fight to save society, right. I just got to play in a make-believe world in my beloved home state of Arkansas for the better part of the year. It was, I, I don't know what, you know, like, it, it really saved my sanity to be able to have that free creative space to roam. Mm-hmm. You bet. That, so, so like you said, you, you spent years working on this new book. Like it's like seven years, I think I read online. Yeah, it's the and a lot of this is where this you know like the the seeds that grow into a story uh, sometimes come from different places and like it, yeah it takes years and then like it's crappy for a long time and then all of a sudden you realize you have something. Yeah. How, so yeah. How how many pages do you? So I get my BA in sequential art. Oh, right I went, on. I to SCAD. Um, and yeah. so like one of the things I think is interesting is how. Just different people work at different paces. Mm-hmm. So there are some people, um, you know, they'll they might do like seven pages a day, which I think is crazy if you're doing like a superhero book and you're yeah, doing yeah. like seven pages a day. Um, or like are you familiar with like Tilly Walden? She's pretty oh. prolific and like she, she yeah. just pumps out pages. Dude, yeah, that on a sunbeam mm-hmm. where she was like on Twitter, she was like, yeah. oh, I'm I, I'm just starting this new thing. I, I guess I'll just post some stuff each day. And then like a month later, she had 150 yeah. pages. That's pretty crazy. <laughs> pretty crazy. Like, so what's your, your project? Cause I, I also know that you're all like traditional, you like use a nib, you use a brush. It's all Bristol. Yeah. It's a, uh, the two main, yeah, the two main components to this answer are previous to March. Mm-hmm. I pretty much fell in line with the classic, cartoonist's advice that you should be able to do a page every workday to get by. So that's about 250 pages a year. If you're, if that's what, that's the thing you do. Uh, and I've been able to stick with that. The, the second half of March, uh, not only was our print schedule like set in stone and we knew we wanted it to come out, but our obligation in terms of the deepening responsibilities to reference and research and fact check new tools at our disposal but also like um the 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 post printing parts of march traveling and talking all this became a whole second task so i had to learn how to draw in the same way twice as fast as previously um and i i hope i i hope i don't ever have to do that again uh that was it was very stressful time (laughs) i'm glad i made it through uh, what, what's weird is from my perspective, when I finished it, I was like looking at the March book three pages. I was like, these look pretty much the same mm-hmm. as the first half of the March trilogy, except I did them twice as fast. What was I doing before? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's weird the way like something was happening, so, you know, that wasn't conscious where I was developing a new visual shorthand mm-hmm. for my own style. And I don't even know what I did, but I'm still that fast now. It's oh, like, that's been kind of like the Christmas present after March yeah. is I was like, time to do come again. And I was like, wait, I just drew three pages. How am I doing this? That's um, cool. Cause I know like the flip side, like Brian Hitch, I think got burned out when he was doing um, like the authority. He did like the authority oh. on time. And then he did that JLA heavens ladder book, which was printed oversized. So he drew it oversized oh. and then he got burned out. And that's when he started having issues with deadlines. It's a rough one, man. Yeah. yeah I, uh, 
a lot of it is like, and as a parent, uh, I've I've learned that I'm a better dad and a better person if I don't try to squeeze in a little extra work yeah. on nights and weekends, even when I have to. I've learned that I don't do it. Like I know that I have about five to six hours a day, five days a week tops to work, and so whatever I need to squeeze into 45 hours of work just has to go into 25. Yeah. And I make that my limit. And when it's time to go on dad time, I don't work. That has made all the difference so that I can stress myself out all I want when it's work time and try to like use that new shorthand to crank some stuff out. But then it's trying really hard not to stress out about it after the fact about things I could do just to like get ahead of the game. Yeah. Yeah. It's, Do you think that helps you preserve your relationship with your work? Like you, like you don't ever get to a point where you resent it because you've got it sequestered where it should be. Like, it's hard to tell because, I, like, I feel like it's going to take a while to before I know the answer to that question. What, what's weird about comics is like or graphic novels, like you spend a couple of years making a book. And nobody sees it, you know. Uh, and then, but like, I finished Come Again, and now I'm working on two other books. But like, you just like, I took like a day off, and then I'm like, well, uh, back to making new books. So uh, a lot of that, it wouldn't be as crazy, I think, if I didn't have two children, etc. Uh, and I'm very grateful for that. But I, I think the headspace, the reflective headspace, just isn't there at this juncture in life right now. And it's all about like I know the things I have to do. I've got to I've got to knock these things out. And so I don't even. It's weird. Like I have one copy of Come Again, which arrived a few days ago, and I did read it. I read it a couple nights ago. Yeah. I found the time, but it still doesn't like I haven't had the headspace because I'm like doing dad stuff or whatever, yeah. where to even be like to reflect like oh I finished. Like my favorite book I've ever done, yeah. Or like the thing I did forever. I haven't thought about any of that. I'm like, oh, macaroni and cheese, mixed uh-huh. veggies. It's gonna happen. Uh, well, having taken a look at Come Again, I was particularly thrilled to see like the same techniques that you you guys can probably tell me what these techniques are called as artists, mm. but like the same techniques that you use to sort of get a, across the the visceral parts of the civil rights struggle, I enjoyed seeing the flip side of them and like steamy love scenes. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I, okay, here's an, another thing about how A, comics take a long time to make. Uh, and so when you have an idea that you're going to work on for years, uh, sometimes like, okay, my, my friend, fellow cartoonist Jeffrey Brown, like 10 years ago, he won a little indie comics award for a book. And at the when they gave out the award, they said something about most of his books at that point were basically his uh, fairly self-absorbed real-life tales of relationships with girlfriends gone wrong. Okay, and uh, that's all. That's, that's go with what that's you know. What his books were, <laughs> and when he got up to accept the award, he was like, you know, he's like, I just want everybody to know I'm. I'm married and I have a kid. <laughs> I'm just really behind on my writing. And I think of it all the time. I was like, he's been married for years at this point. Yeah. He's like, I got to get, it's going to take a few more years before I move into that, that phase. But also like, the, this is the way that I think, not just 
underground music as a community. But this is the way I think underground punk, especially of the 90s, and especially with the weird creature that Sufjan Squad had and tapped into as, as an entity, conceptually and with our performance and really with our friendships and relationship with each other as a family unit, um, you know, a lot of it was, you know, like we started when we were 14 and then, you know, when we ended, some of us were 30. And so like we went through long periods where a lot of that was reckoning with coming of age, becoming an adult, holding on to the good aspects of youth while empowering yourself. But it also kind of flavored a lot of our song interests and our conceptual interest so that it was stuck in this like adolescent, sometimes pre-sexual perspective. Mm -hmm. And I feel like my comics were kind of the same thing because in some ways a lot of my earlier comics and my music are, are very deeply intertwined and it, it made me a little more hesitant to explore like adult issues like mature sexuality and relationship mm -hmm. dynamics in a particular way. So when the time came around to finally do this book that I had, it wasn't a book I started when I was 20, finally. You know, I was like, oh, well, thank God, finally, I can have some steamy sex scenes. Because yeah. that's what the characters need to have. Because there are all these elbows and sides and hips and um, and you just get to love them. Yeah. <laughs> is, that, is that too much to ask? Is <laughs> that too much to ask? Well, so you, uh, for our listeners who do not know Sufi Nun Squad, this was a, a group of sort of revolving cast, right? Like all... Yeah, it's an expanse, an ever expansive cast. Okay, ever expansive <laughs> cast. And to me, what I love about the work is that it was like unabashedly punk, but in um, like with with a a lot of the anger as if it had pivoted toward like joy and it, it had pivoted toward like free expression. And um, you know, you like sort of famously performed on the lawn of the governor's mansion is our first right? show first, yeah, show first show at the behest of jim guy tucker's daughter yeah uh a really cool history you should check it out also i think so you dropped these 40 sufi nun squad tracks on the internet last year it was oh yeah great gift yeah. to humanity <laughs> we we had when sufi was inactive we had a final set of recordings that we never did uh that we wanted to call after the sugar rush and then uh we wanted that, then that became an idea for more of like a retrospective. And then I stopped doing a record label. And so, and then life just moved on. But especially in the last year and a half under the regime, as, as we're all doing the things we need to do to get by, like mm -hmm. going to work, going to school, taking care of our kids, whatever. Uh, I found that finding something I can do to contribute something that's positive and constructive and something I can do to fight back every day helps. And sometimes it's something that doesn't appear to, yeah, like sometimes it's like secretly dropping, you know, like MP3 mixtapes on a Dropbox folder for people. And so, yeah, like I needed Sufi at some point early last year. I really needed the power of Sufi Nun Squad. Yeah. And so yeah. I, I just spent a couple hours in the morning just listening to stuff and I was like, wait, I'm just going to make After the Sugar Rush right now and just give uh -huh. it to everybody. Uh-huh. So, so that's why it just took an hour. And then I was like, here are my 40 favorite Sufi Nun Squad songs. Yeah. I hope that if you need this right now, because I feel like you do, <laughs> there it is. 
Uh, there is an element of resistance in that work, right? Like, so I'm yeah, thinking of the donkey bray, encouraging everybody oh, to yeah. bray like donkeys and give up your automobiles and ride and shut donkeys. Down the town. <laughs> shut yeah. down the town. Um, so it might not be so transparent all the time right. how a Sufi nun squad and your work there translates to your, you know, your voice of resistance now, but it's there. Oh, it's the connection it, is there. It's inseparable. I think. You know, like I got into punk in 1991, and particularly in the in the 90s in Arkansas, and and I say that with, uh, you know, with a grain of salt because I moved away from here in 2004. So obviously, I think that you know the 90s would be the peak era, but most of us agree that it was a peak <laughs> era. Uh, Ark, yeah, Little Rock had one of the 10 best cities in America for punk. Um, and it's just a vibrant, creative, supportive community, and it still is. Um, one thing that makes Little Rock, it has always made Little Rock's underground so exceptional in the truest sense of that word, is the fact that like this metropolitan area doesn't have a, quote, strong college presence. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so like that there are a lot of folks doing things and a lot of creative folks. So uh, it's interesting that in order to have enough people to keep something afloat and have it thrive from the get go, from like the late eighties on, it's required this weird mashup of all of these different threads uh, from like from punk to the, the, the local hip hop scene to the uh, Little Rock's, you know, crown jewel Little Rock's swamp metal scene uh, to its arts communities. So like there are a lot of, there are a lot of shows like the norm for my particular generation of punks was that typically there would be a punk band, a metal band, sometimes like a DJ uh, and some people doing some weird like tap dancing or performance art at a show. Uh, and, and like, as soon as I moved away from Little Rock, even just for college, I realized that things were much more segmented mm-hmm. and regimented and things either belonged or they didn't belong. And, and maybe of, they were on campus or not. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and so I, I feel like a lot of the, not just like the vibrancy of expression, uh, but like the, the, the positive pressure uh, that exists in the creative communities here and in the underground here. Um, I feel like all of those forces combined and the necessity of like the necessity of self-expression in a lot of ways, like I think Eli said this better than I did when we for the interview for the Towncraft movie. But basically, like there was pressure, like if you're just coming to the shows and you're just kind of like standing around, you're encouraged to like do something or make something or kind of get going, mm-hmm. like move along. Uh, and and to me, this is a direct translation. Like a lot of the things that I picked up from punk and from the underground. Uh, and, and the the accessibility of being able to make your own noise and express your ideas and the fact that other people, you know, are ready to receive those and 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 talk back with you about it or make something back. Um, that just that directly translates as a very powerful force in how I try to be a part of shaping things, you know, in the world at large. And I think for most of us who are involved in music or in or in art particularly in this town or in this state um that's that's the biggest takeaway like if you want if you want something cool to happen or you know if you want to undo some damage you've got to be a part of doing that 
Right. Make it. There's some parallel in there with like with complicity, right? So the idea that uh, for us to do nothing still has an effect. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So this book, is it out? Because I saw on Amazon it's not okay. available until August 7th, but it right. looks like it, is it out already? Well, this weekend there are a few copies at the ALA, the American okay. Library Association conference. All right. But it'll be out in comic book stores on July 11th. Okay. And then four weeks later on August 7th, it'll be out bookstores online everywhere. Oh, cool. So comic book stores get the jump on everybody. Oh, yes, they do. That's nice. So like August, August 3rd, I'm going to go up to Fayetteville mm-hmm. and do a talk and do a signing. At Nightbird Books, and then August fourth, I'll be here at the comic book store on Treasure Hill Road oh, to nice. do a, a signing. So, in a few weeks, it'll be out. Yeah, yeah, cool. Um, I'll make sure I'll be there. Yeah. Well, thanks, man. Yeah. All right. I look forward to seeing you. Yeah. Yeah. Listeners, we will remind you uh, a little later on when Nate Powell is back in town for the talk at comics. Comic, comic book stores on, on uh, it's like off JFK in North Little Rock. Well, there's two. That's yeah. a collector's edition. Okay. That one on Treasure Hill is in towards West Little Rock off Rodney Parham. Yeah, it's by. Wait, is Professor Bull still around? It's still there. Professor Bull still it's, there. It's right down the street from <laughs> Professor Bull, y'all. Sure Professor Bull uh, is actually where, as far as I know, is where the earliest roots of Little Rock's punk scene started. Before it was a Professor Bull, there used to be, I don't know if it was an empty pool or if it was actually a half pipe that around 82 uh the first wave of little rock punks used to skate there before there were any bands so like page hearn of page skateboards and uh most of the teen members of econo christ as, as like little tiny tots used to skate there uh, before they realized they could make bands <laughs> so, so thanks again Let's professor bowl ditch the skateboards for guitars <laughs> you do comics full-time now yes right yeah so Since you don't do um, and so, so that's before March. So before yes. March, you already given up working a regular day job. And, yes. And, okay. And, and bef- before I had the chance to to really see if I could do it, I had actually given up on the possibility of being mm. a full time cartoonist. I didn't see how it could be done, especially with the weird books I made and living in Indiana. And uh, I I liked and valued my career working, uh, doing care and advocacy work for adults with developmental disabilities. So I was fine working that job. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I got approached to draw someone else's book, which was The Silence of Our Friends. And uh, I actually, I turned them down at first because I was like, yeah, but it takes me so long to make books. And, you know, like, I can't make my own, you know, like with my job and everything. How could I, how could I possibly do that? And they're like, um will pay you to draw yeah. the book. And I was like, nobody's ever said that to me before. <laughs> like, it's... Because, like, years before that, Sam Keith, the the creator of The, the Max, Max, he, like, found me somehow, and he tried to get me to... Uh, he wanted me to draw two miniseries that he had mm-hmm. written. And I was into it, uh, but it was the same thing. Like, I, I had not yet acclimated myself to, like, the idea that if it's something that's going to happen, hopefully somebody will give you some money mm-hmm. while you're doing it. I was just used to like, you sit in your room and you make this thing yeah. and then you try to make it happen. So I had to pass on that. I was like, did you, what did you ask about? No, I was like too naive. Oh, wow. and, and really I was too wrapped up in like my personal world and even like 
I'll go ahead and say it. I was too punk okay. to, to use my adult brain to be like, I should ask about getting paid. To think of it as monetizing <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. Or yeah. even it's just like yeah. a consideration of time and, and labor, you know, mm-hmm. to be like, yeah, but what is that? Yeah. I didn't think I could ask that question. But so thankfully I had this, this uh, one chance. When was, what, what year was this? The, the Sam Keith thing was actually, it was like 2002, 2003. Okay. So you would, how old? I would have been like 24. Okay. Thank you so much, Nate Powell, for joining us on No Small Talk. Well, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. And we'll be right back. Welcome back to No Small Talk, and we're going to throw some recommendations at you. Omaya, do you have a recommendation? I do. June 24th, which I believe is Sunday, from 11 to 4 in the Argenta Arch, Arch District, mm-hmm. is Beers and Queers Argenta Community Pride Block Party. And so this is uh, hosted by the Water Buffalo um, Brewing Company. Kaleidoscope is a co-sponsor. And so you know there'll be food trucks. There'll be music. Uh, people will be hanging out, having a good time. Just um, it's a block party. What a great recommendation. Yeah. I read about this. And then I also know it's going to be hot as hell. And mm-hmm. Flyway is going to stay open. So if you mm-hmm. need a little break, you can duck in there. Um, beers and queers. Yeah. Hell yeah. Let's see. Do you have any recommendations? I do. Mine's a little bit more somber, I guess. <laughs> but um, there's a fantastic essay that's been on my mind this week uh, called Art Against the Walls by Stephanie Elizondo Greist. It is in issue 88 of the Oxford American. And it's about... Um, some of the photography that takes place around the border in Brownsville, Texas, and uh, where a lot of people try to cross over into this country and the things that sort of get left behind in in the fields. Um, Some beautiful prose and also uh, just a chance to remind ourselves that uh, these are people trying to do the best they can for their family and um it's really beautiful i think you should read it it's called art art against the wall and it's in the i believe it's the spring issue of that year issue 88 of the oxford american which i'm sure you can grab at their website oxfordamerican.org i'll check it out awesome thanks for listening to no small talk and we'll be back next week 